about all things Dungeons and Dragons. And I've had an extra cup of coffee. That's right. We're feeling awake this morning and Ooh. ready to continue our series. Yes. On... Uh, it's it's taken a while mm. to get here. Uh, this is episode seven, part seven of our celebration of doing a hundred episodes together. Uh, which mm. is And who knows, amazing. maybe the celebration will go for a hundred episodes. Yeah, it <laughs> feels like it. Um, thank you all for staying tuned if you've been listening all the way through. Um, in this series, we've been going through 101 things to do in D&D before you die. This is more of a suggestion list than a a, a must-do it, or this is how list. you're supposed to play. It's a little bucket list. Something, it's about experiences that I think everyone should try if you're going to master. Um, if you're yeah, going to yeah. have like a, a large breadth of experience inside. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, try this stuff out. These are things that we've done, we love, or we sometimes want to we really yeah. want to do. Most of them we've done. Um, so yeah, at least one of us, one of the two of us, yeah. Time. yeah. Uh, so, anyways, we're uh, at number 20, and here we are, yeah, yeah. 20. Making our way, uh, number 20, take the healer's feet. Mm. People sleep on the healer's feet, I think people do sleep on the healer's feet. Um, and not, not that you know, uh, the most taken f- uh, feat by my long margin is um, Warcaster, uh, and okay. for you know, for reasons. You know, and we think about having a healer in the party. We typically are like, ooh, get a cleric, get a druid, right? Mm. But the healer's feat is phenomenal. Um, it allows, it takes the ordinary old healer's kit, which is just 10 GP to buy. Sure. And that 10 GP gives you 10 doses. How much is one healing potion? Like 25 GP. 50. 50 GP. You could get five healing kits. 50 GP for something that does 2D4 plus 2. Whereas mm. the healer's kit with the healer's feet, and hey, doctor background while you're at it, why not? Um, you don't have to do that. But the healer's feet lets you do uh, 1d6. Um, As an action, you can spend one use of your healer's yes. kit to tend to a creature and restore 1d4 plus 4 hit points, plus additional hit points equal to creature's maximum of hit dice, which is also the character's uh, level. It's 1D, 1d6 plus 4. That's what I said, no? Uh, I think you said 1d4. It's 1d6 plus 4. So I will right, check the tapes. <laughs> that's a yeah. that's a significantly better than the healing potion. Uh particularly the because of the plus 4, right? So you're getting a mm. minimum of 5 plus the level of the character that you're healing. Yeah. So it scales, which healing potions don't. And here's the crazy true. thing. You can hit everybody with this once per short rest it's true because here let's see let's see the little requisite little thing here the creature can't regain hit points from this feat again until it finishes a shorter long rest so if you haven't used it in a day and someone everyone is like oh we're gonna take a long rest before you take the long rest before you even take a short rest you do it yeah do like use this with everyone give everyone 1d6 plus 4 plus their level hit points take the short rest and then you can do it again if you really need to yeah well people tend to burn some hit points uh, hit dice at that point but maybe they burn one less hit dice each because you've done this exactly um and that that's that's a huge boon Hmm. also it's got another really nice effect this is the first little bullet point on the yeah where somebody has gone down they're making death saves and you run over Normally, a healer's kit would let you just stabilize them automatically. No need to roll. They're just they're just stabilized, which is great. And also, by the way, folks, anybody can run over to anybody and do a medicine check and help stabilize them mm-hmm. rather than just waiting for them to hopefully pass their death saves. Everybody can help stabilize somebody, and you should. Um, anyways, if you've got this feat, not only do they are they automatically stabilized, they actually get one hit point back, which means they're back on their feet and they can start moving again and get out of danger. And that is huge. Mm. Yeah, it is really big. If you don't have anyone in your party who's going to like be playing a cleric or a druid or a bard or anyone who has access to healing spells, even as a fighter or you played a barbarian who took yeah. the healer feat, you become the party's like savior, you know, in many tight spots, right? Yeah. 
if you can give everyone a healer's kit in the party, I mean, you having a couple on hand, instead of buying, like, oh, let's buy three healing potions. No, let's buy 15 healer's kits, you know? <laughs> well, listen, for the price of one healing potion, I get five healer's kits. That's it's 50, 50 uses. That's 50 uses of, of this. Of this 1d6 plus four, right? And and <clears throat> and what I was doing is I was having my character would teach first aid to the party so that everybody had a healer's kit, and if anybody went down immediately we would stabilize each other yeah it was just became our standard procedure yeah. the, the the threat of death when everyone is trained in stabilizing one another is immensely immensely loosened if you have a grave domain cleric of course like be like well maybe my healing is not as useful anymore because they're going to be able to stabilize people bonus action 30 feet away no issue right yeah. but in a party where especially in, in some campaign settings it may be a low magic setting the healer feat is a great way to still maintain that ability to support and heal the party yeah um, which is why we recommend it. <coughs> Another feat, perhaps, notable of taking. Um, we've had our coffee. We, we yeah, I'm sorry. I'm clearing my throat out. in the background. Um, so, yeah. Number uh, 19. Moving on to other uh, ways to use your ASIs. Um, here's a, a controversial hot take. Take the resilience constitution, uh, resilient constitution instead of taking Warcaster. Mm, yes, why why do this what's the what's the well all right so there's there's pros and cons to it warcaster obviously gives you a couple of really quick things that uh resilient constitution isn't which is like you can cast stuff while holding shields and weapons and stuff in your hand hmm. right which is clearly a bonus um and then it gives you advantage on uh saving through concentra concentration checks right yeah that advantage and it lets you reaction opportunity attack with spells yep and hold a sword and shield in both hands some okay. of those things there's a lot of stuff in as there as well for sure um with the resilient constitution you get you, a plus one to your ability score right which, which can right. take an odd number and round it up to an even number it's a half we're assuming that's kind of one of the big reasons to take this as well mm -hmm. so suddenly you get an automatic plus one bump it's like you still took half of your asi and you get a proficiency with constitution saving throws which doubles your your proficiency mm. uh, or doubles your um sorry it adds your proficiency to the dice roll yeah so that number and that number begins to scale as you go up in levels so at the lower levels probably i get the, in the first four levels if you say you took variant human or something Rolling Warcaster at the advantage probably gives you a slightly better lift. Well, I could see a lot of reasons why a low-level caster would want to take, you know, war, like Warcaster, obviously, right? It's it's a very popular. And the, the thing is, if you have multiple ASIs and you're really about the, con like, concentration, you, you could both. take both. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely an option still. The thing, though, is if you're looking to take Warcaster purely because it helps with your concentration, and you've already got a proficiency bonus of plus three, and, like, maybe, in like, a, a constitution of 13, you will either a get advantage or b a consistent plus four bump that one reflects in increasing your hit point maximum potentially two would help you with all of your concentration saves and three helps with everything else constitution right and as I you mean, raise and go up in levels that that plus four is going to be plus five plus six plus seven and it's just going to get better and better mm -hmm. um and all of those lifts you know given the way that bounded accuracy works given the tight you know constraints that there are on saving throws and whatnot you are i mean keep in mind damage can be dealt in ever increasing numbers to you as you go up in level as well and mm -hmm. makes your concentration checks harder and harder so the thing about this is that it really does help you keep up with the with the war uh, against your concentration the, and, and the, the war against war your hit points right yeah. i mean if you fall unconscious you're also going to lose that's that, yeah um, yeah that extra spell, extra right? hit point per per level not is only that not but terrible some people don't sometimes recognize how common constitution saving throws are yeah i think by statistics they're like the most common in the game maybe besides dexterity right yeah. and having proficiency in those saving throws is going to save your butt more times than you can count yeah. Um, which is why I think it's worthwhile. If you're just looking at Warcaster because of its concentration bonus, maybe look at Resilient Constitution I, instead, again, especially if during character creation you have an odd constitution. These last two feats that we've just mentioned are ones that I think we believe people sleep on a lot, that they don't quite recognize how good they are. Um, they, they don't read 
when you read them like they're super powerful but when you start to actually get them into play you realize oh wow like these things outperform um so much more than i thought they would mm. the next two options on our list are options that are still sort of oriented around character creation little things that you can do to spice up character creation um so yes number 18, number 18. uh play an entirely non-combat character Mm, what does that mean, non-combat character? Because right. you're still going to roll for initiative, right? Sure you do. Sure you do. Um, okay, so I've played a, a knowledge debating cleric who, and I say entirely non-combat, I think there was a couple of times he made, like, attack rolls of the dagger. And somehow that was the one that got the kill yeah, that gets like, the multiple kill. times. But, but. but, you know, only in, like, really, really dire situations. Um, generally, I'd say 90 eight percent of the time um no combat action no attack action generally taken and you would think oh the party's going to hate this character because i'm not out there dealing damage per round right i mean mm -hmm. sure. what's, how much damage can my character do well the surprising thing is your character is going to do way more damage because of my character if I play him very tactically and smart about where I place him, I can use my movement to set up uh, flanking for you. I can you, pick up your weapons exactly. You drop them. Your your character would often want to switch from two blades to a bow, an arrow, and the only way to do that in D and D without you know burning a turn, switching weapons, is just to drop your swords, which sucks unless you've got a buddy who follows along behind you and <laughs> picks them up. Mm. Um, and and the way that I would work the character as well as I, I used, um, I'd use sanctuary on him. Uh, he had pretty good AC under that anyways. He was wearing some, yeah, plus some it chain mail. The one thing is if you're um, taking sanctuary because you want to be the tank, it's terrible yeah, because it does you, the opposite of tanking. It literally just moves attacks onto other people. Right. But I could, it did mean though that I could be, I could take chances of getting up quite close to baddies without really worrying about getting hit too much the sanctuary would cut down the number of times it would hit me um and yes you're right that would often redirect attacks to other people um but uh if i did get if it did get through my sanctuary there was enough ac in there usually or on top of which i would often be taking the dodge action mm -hmm. um if i wasn't taking the dodge action which gives me which would give the disadvantage to their attack rolls um i would be taking the help action and making sure that when somebody else in my party was able to uh, get advantage on their shots, especially for like people taking range attacks and things like mm -hmm. that. I could move up close to a target, harass them with the help action, and, and even then try and move back away from them, um, triggering their opportunity attacks so that other part people in my party could move through that space sure. um, without risking that. And so, you know... It, you have a very tactical role on the board when you're playing a character like this. Sanctuary means combat. you can't really attack anybody because it ruins your sanctuary spell. Exactly. Um, but you but yeah, it. it's about holding concentration on things like bless. It's about holding. Yeah, I can get these those other spells. These up. effects that give people advantage on their attacks that make it so they're not taking damage or falling. You know, and whenever a person would fall below zero, you've got the healing magic yeah. as a cleric yeah, to, healing to bring word, them back, up, back right? up, things like that. Um, other ways that this can sort of manifest is using spells that are kind of subduing enemies without actually damaging them. Um, I mean, I know it's still kind of an offensive move, but things like knowledge and clerics eventually get things that can use sort of suggestion kind of magic commands mm. or things like that, right, that are, are still perhaps not damaging or yeah. removing enemies from the board, but are still kind of taking care of them in, in a sense, right? Um, yeah. Uh, we do a lot of augury with this character, with sure. a lot of um, sort of being able to, to try and calculate odds and figure things out. Um, but they were also there to, you know, run through a scene and open, uh, run through a, a fight to a back door and open it up so half the party could come in through the back. And mm -hmm. there was sure. all sorts of things that moving around the board, being able to do. Um, I remember one point, like doing sort of a thaumaturgy to shake dust down from a ceiling to help find invisible creatures and just being creative with like the use of, of sort of non-combat spells to, you know, help other players on the board. And the more you helping 
everybody else on the board, actually, the more valuable you suddenly become to the party. Um, people are surprisingly uh, grateful. Not when you do a ton of damage to something, but when you help them do a ton of damage to sure. something. Uh, it's uh, definitely feels better to, to, you know, lend. Everybody in the party wants to land the big killer blow. Um, sure. Nobody cares if, if, if somebody else does. I mean, of course, you want to win the fight overall, but... I think there's a lot to be said about not being, not being the star fighter on your team. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, again, this is sort of thinking about addressing different roles in the game. People who are maybe accustomed to playing clerics would even still be used to mostly using their action to cast Sacred Flame or whatever, right? I mean, even as a bard, you may be inclined to cast Vicious Mockery with your action. I would suggest not only do you use your bardic inspiration to help someone out, take the help action, take the dodge yeah. action, get somewhere else in position, make a persuasion check, do some stuff that isn't necessarily just combat related. Um, even outside of combat, you know, we played in a, a RPG system that wasn't um, D&D, it was a, that was like the Star Wars RPG, and you played a character that again was entirely non-combat. You didn't have much to do when combat started, and I think that's maybe a part of the game's design that was maybe a bit faulty, but... I still think you had an amazingly fun character. Yeah, I think you know it was it was about design, um, about you know leaning into the idea of being a a face, a or, face, yeah. yeah, somebody who had all the powers to talk and negotiate and bargain and do all of this and sacrifice kind of everything else yeah. in exchange for that. And lo and behold, the party really needed somebody like that. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, and and D and D you do as well, frankly, um, which is why. I think, you know, paladin and bard characters often people bards maybe they you see it all the time. Paladins maybe less so, but they really do have the the right ability scores to to be um Face. great negotiators. Sure. Um, I mean, especially like I mean you think about the different ways in which they're a negotiator. Even from the other classes that use charisma like you know, warlock or sorcerer, right? Yeah. I mean, they all kind of approach the face in different ways, right? The sorcerer might be, I don't know, again, sorcerer's the hardest one for me to imagine. Like, I keep, like, whenever it's a charisma thing for them, I'm like, I don't get it. I, yeah, I feel I like... We've often d discussed why yeah. sorcerer should be a different stat block, possibly constitution. Like, a bard um, charisma makes totally sense. It's about their, you know, yeah. presence and ability to perform and persuade and whatever, right? And then, but then the, you know, the... Paladin could be very intimidating or very much more persuasive from a, a matter of reason and respect, right? I mean, you think about it in different ways that charisma and, and the way that in real life people use rhetorical devices or, or certain patterns or methods of speech to convince people. But again, we're going on a tangent now. But the idea is build a character not just for combat. You know, think about how you, you don't just need to take the, yeah. the attack action. I, I, but even... The, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, the D&D &D isn't, isn't D&D &D if combat doesn't kind of show up at some point. But mm -hmm. it's okay in those situations to do all sorts of other activity actions in that space that There's maybe the other players exist. don't have time to do. You can you could maybe flip a table over and create cover for your yeah, rogue. Interact with the environment. Um, We've got a whole could... episode discussing exactly what you can do as a non-damage yeah. dealing character. Um Speaking of your our little Star Wars, yeah, we thing had, we did that takes us to seventeen quite nicely. Uh, number seventeen on our top one hundred and one list is uh, make a character duo with another player. A character duo in this sense implies like you before the campaign starts, you are close, you are sure. you are like each other's foils in a sense, right? Or each yeah. other's sort of like I've I've had players do siblings. Sure, I mean they could be related and, and bonded in certain ways, but even that your builds synergize together, yeah. right? Like this example, tying back to the stories when the Star Wars um, campaign, the reason that I bring it up is that your face character had nothing to do in combat and is much more of a turn it to stop combat from happening or negotiate or make a deal and you're the face. And I played, and we were both playing droids, and I played a droid that was all the muscle. He was the Just pure, pure punch, punching in combat. And of course, there's still smashing and through had very doors little to and, most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. But the thing is, we were droids that could like kind of piece together and create an ultimate super yeah. droid that was both you talking and me punching and we were this when this just it cool stat, duo stat blocks in D, D are the same like you can have to divide your points up somehow oh yeah you're gonna have some dump stats 100%. um and that's okay because in theory in a party somebody else has the stats that you don't mm. now sometimes when you're putting a party together it's very random um not all every group 
that sits down all talking about you know strategizing everybody comes up their own player character idea and who knows maybe you got a bit of a mishmash maybe a few people call it what they're doing in advance so others kind of choose something a little bit different or whatever but a lot of times you don't have terribly synergized but if you sit down with somebody else and go okay let's make a duo of characters that are like help each other exactly out, you know? and one person can lean into all the strength constitution dexterity stats or whatever and the other one can or, lean yeah, into you the can power build together with the notion that both of you kind of cover each other's weaknesses yeah. or you can make this kind of lore based back and forth like oh you're a some sort of caster and i'm i'm this you know whatever fighter that's here to protect you and sure. you know keep your concentration up and you know help you get off spells and well, that's take it. the hits and, and and you could really come up with uh with little combo moves where you know there is you have you pick spells deliberately to boost that character like, oh i'll hold my action when you hit them with the you yeah. know the poison spray or the frostbite or the whatever to then do a little extra you know, yeah. stab her. I don't know. But. I'll haste you and then, you know, stay back so I don't well, lose concentration. Well, the haste is the obvious one, right? Um, but. I don't know. These are sort of, you know, sure. you're right, obvious ways to do it. But again, why not do that? Like it's... Make it something that you know, already know how to do. You've worked together in yeah. combat beforehand or you understand each other's And it's, know, it's a good, it's your kind of go-to mm-hmm. uh, strategy every time. Yeah, and if you... If you think about this for a while, if you start to actually sit down and, and look at different ways you do it, I mean, it's one thing to when people say, okay, I've got a really cool build for a character, and this is the, these are the different subclasses I'm taking that makes it, you know, really interesting. But then you suddenly like, well, what if I have two characters that I'm building and synergizing together? Your options, you know, are manifold now. Like, you've got so mm-hmm. much more power that you can do uh, things that, 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 that boost each other. And now you're really playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Now yeah. you're really taking it up to a whole nother level of, of potential damage output or potential mm. RP or whatever you want. It it, um, it really does. And it can be more fun for backstories and stuff as well um, and things. So, yeah, definitely uh, a duo with another player is, uh, is quite fun. Yes. Um, as a DM, moving on now swiftly to number 16, make handouts for your players. What was the most recent thing that you made to hand out to your players? Um, we in, in further up this list, we talked about giving your your characters goals and a nice little way of doing this. When I got back to doing some D and D after quite the significant break um, from lockdown, uh, we came out and I'm like, all right, I want to make their goals clear. I want to give them objectives. I want them to be able to see that. And so I designed these little handouts to give each of them each session with a little like icon or symbol or whatever that kind of represents what the character's all about. And there were about, you know, two to three different things that they could do that were related to the session at hand. Um, and then they'd most of the time get all three of them complete. And at the little bottom, there'd be a little reward, right? Um, there was a little video I saw by Matt Colville on doing this exact thing. Um, creating handouts with specific objectives and specific rewards, right? And it does make it a little bit like video game quest in, in a certain sense. But if you trust your players not to sort of metagame it um, and instead sort of be use it as almost like this intuition or this, this feeling or this the motivation that drives their character, um, many times they'd have questions like, I don't know what this is. And it's like, you're about to figure it out. Um, and they'd be like, oh, okay. Um, or I would tell them right there or make, you know, be clear with your players, right? Don't make it a mystery or, or obtuse, um, but give them clear goals that they will then get the rewards that they want to get. And if you're like, oh, well, I don't know what to give my players, best way to do that, ask them. Ask them what their character wants. Sometimes they won't know. Many times they will know. Um, and they'll be like, oh, I want this new magic item or I want this new ability or feature or whatever, right? And not, it's not always going to be a level up. Sometimes it could just be like a nice sword or a shield or a better spellcasting focus or some kind of wondrous item that helps them see in the dark or, I don't know, think about like their character and what they would benefit from. Um, and asking them is always a great way as well if you're, if you're ever unsure. But I, I think it's just a, a sweet little thing to do that shows that you're thinking about your players. It gives them focus, motivation. Sometimes, because um, every players would be different, I would be like, don't show it to each other. And they'd get a little suspicious and be like, why are you doing this? Or do I, and sometimes it'd be overlapping or even sometimes, you know, contradictory. Um, and then I'd be careful in those situations because it can often cause 
unneeded tension at the table. Yeah. But if you've got good players that kind of understand how to role play with that or lean into it, it can be really fun as well with people getting a little suspicious of each other in certain moments. Um, I don't know. It's fun. And you can take this even further. There can be, you know, in-game props of letters or deeds or, you know, other things you can do up mm -hmm. in like little scroll type things on, you know, paper that you may kind of look old and you tie it up or you can print out, uh, print out pictures of what the bad guys look like. Find something cool images on poster. Pinterest or things like that. Or yeah, we'll do whatever suits your setting. Um, I was going to suggest, you know, you can add like people often, again, if you're trying to stay paper based and not have to like just turn your screen around or show things like you can like print out pictures of how bad and scary something looks. If you're, especially if you're not good at describing things or, um, magic items you can write up a magic item onto a recipe card or an actual <laughs> recipe <laughs> yeah uh hand things like that out uh and or even the the cute way of doing um healing potions where you put a few dice in a little glass jar and then, uh, and then hand that out mm -hmm. to them and they actually shake those d4s out mm -hmm. and use that as a healing potion i like what you said about um making it like a, a specific mm. to the setting, right? Because I'm imagining now some Lancer, if you've ever heard of it, it's like mechs and space, you know, or like whatever kind of like mission objective. And you actually just slam down a case file and like start explaining and be like, yeah, pass it around. And so the, the brain, brain splitting between hearing what I'm saying and people taking notes of that and then flipping open the case files and seeing extra details that I'm not saying um, that kind of give them some information on who their adversaries are, what the mission objective is, who their you allies are. You can do that in D&D &D as well. I mean, you could easily have a, you know, a king or queen or duchess or whatever, you know, quest put people on a quest and provide them with, you know, a... Yeah. you know file of information about them uh, there's a, book a of stuff there's something they, like boom. as well beautiful about the investigation side of it and yeah. not even requiring skill check just you saying some things that are different from what the paper says and then making inferences and guesses sure. in between or learning more or using their sort of investigative skills and using all the tools they got to uncover the mystery is very rewarding if instead of you saying something and then going <gasps> you know if you say something and then a paper says a different thing and then they go <gasps> You know, then they make the discovery, then they put the dots together. I think it's a fun opportunity um, with handouts. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, also a deck of uh, magic items, um, mm -hmm. Griffin Saddlebag. Uh, those make fun handouts in the right situation. Yeah, you just, like, pull one of those and hand it to somebody, um, which you can make your own as well. Um, again, a little bit of a draw your own picture or print out uh something from the internet or whatever glue together craft a little bit um these things are all really especially if you're playing paper based at the table um you know super nice to be able to do mm. um another thing that you can get and maybe this is less a handout for players but still an interactive thing you can do Definitely. for players number 15 this is something you have more experience with yeah get a taroka deck and use it in as many ways as possible for those unfamiliar, the Taroka deck is part of the Curse of Strahd campaign setting. It is a, uh, it can be substituted with a regular deck of cards, although the, the ones that are uh, made for the game are much prettier. <laughs> um, and and there's ways to find these online and print them out and cut and paste, make your own if you want. But the nicely made ones are are wonderful. Uh, I've got a couple of decks, different sizes. Um, and the rules is written with it. You use it really only once in the game. At the very beginning, it's designed to help you sort of randomize where treasure and stuff is so that you can play Curse of Strahd again and again, and it's kind of different every time. Mm. But going beyond that, there's all sorts of ways that you can use the deck, uh, and there's plenty of people who have made supplements, so you're free to make your own. Um, to do all sorts of things with it, whether it's, uh, you know, as boons when instead of handing out magic items, you hand out, you know, little cards like this that allow them, the party, to gain certain bonuses or do certain unique actions once. Um, maybe gains, you know, a, a reroll on a thing or a, a reroll on an attack or a saving throw or something. Or sometimes, you know, there's very particular sort of ways they they work um and they hold the cards so they've got these cards that they get to kind of do cool things with as they decide to play it back 
And you get to see this whole, you know, deck with like different types of cards, of like coins and swords and glyphs and stars and the high deck. And, and they start to learn, you know, there's sort of meaning behind each of these cards and the different ways you sort of keep, you know, reusing it to, to, you know, have them, their fate sort of determined randomly. But it becomes this other like device at the table and you doesn't have to be a taroka deck you could do this with other playing cards or however you want but apart from just having dice that randomly tell your stories in D, having a deck of cards that helps randomly tell your story in D, like this this whole randomizing sort of portion mm. of the game of of all you know rpgs is part of the fun but as both dm and players you don't know what the outcome of various situations are going to be and having a dice roll or in this case drawing a card add to the story change the direction the story's going mm. um create opportunities everybody's got to sort of improvise around is part of the fun it uh, is part of the fun um you'll see in some rpgs where it uses straight up playing card decks i mean wild magic for a long time instead of just using dice i used cards yeah um with different values being different whatever right and it was a weird fun different mechanic that mixed things up um there's something interesting about having either like just values of cards or even if you see like images on cards there's something that they suggest in like this kind of weird sort of semiotics way that can inspire you to you know create certain things in your game right i think it's again another tool for storytelling that is sometimes neglected um, and Taroka deck especially, you'll see like the merchant, and you go, hmm, I wonder what that means in this situation or whatever, right? Um, it's it's a fun thing to do, especially if you've got like maybe random encounters, and you're like, I don't know, I'm getting bored of the old fight or the old whatever, and like draw a card. Maybe you do draw something like the you know the the knight or whatever, and there's this suddenly this big full plate knight with a a horse that's also got armor on it, and it's all he's all dinged up, and it's like, whoa, what happened? You know, there's something weird and interesting about seeing something that stands out, or is maybe even a little spooky or, or different, or out of out of mists in a sense. If you're doing something in uh, Ravenloft, so we have uh, I'll just give you some examples of things that the cards might might happen. So, and it's up to you to decide how and when you hand out little boons like this but for example if you drew the the one of coins the swashbuckler mm -hmm. when a creature within five feet of you makes an attack with advantage you can play this card to grant a disadvantage to the attack roll if the attack misses you make a melee weapon attack against the creature as a reaction that's fun and and it kind of speaks to what the card says it is and it's a uh, you know these are sort of things We've talked about making magic items before and how hard sometimes if you give somebody a magic item it gets out overpowered because they can like you know use it too much or whatever the thing about having a card like this on hand is you you sort of decide oh i'm gonna play it now and instead of just giving out inspiration points or things like that giving out a card like this there's a really particular case that they use it but things attack you with advantage all the time it happens and suddenly you're like aha disadvantage to you and then you're suddenly like oh and i get a reaction stab and it's like that's all cool and then it's done the card's gone and it goes back in the deck and we shuffle it up and we you know and this doesn't happen like this well almost once per session maybe the cards come out for some reason um sometimes multiple times per per session but and sometimes maybe a session without them um kind of go you know play it by ear you don't have to overdo it I do say use it as often as you can. I have um, another character in the party who's playing a champion. And as we know, champions are a little boring. Uh, they get an extra critical hit uh, boost, uh, 19 or 20 they crit. Mm. And I've got another little uh, supplement here from the DMs Guild, the Taroka critical hit deck, which is pretty fun. Um, so whenever the, the champion crits, not only do we double the damage, we also oh, draw... We double the dice, you mean? Double the dice. We, uh, we also draw a card. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it could be anything. Like a three of stars says... Uh, and they always hear the voice of of the of Madam Eva, who's the fortune teller, sort of in the back of their, of their mind. Um, give them a little advice. The gleam of a blue rune infuses your armor with the weave and suddenly their armor glows a little bit after the critical hit now they gain plus five on their ac until the start of their next turn 
that's a pretty light one. Um, there's others that do way more damage when you hit with them. Um, Plus five AC is nothing to Yeah, no, no, it's at, not bad. I think oh, it's a fun oh, idea here, this was fun. make the merchant. more interesting, yeah. Um, they, uh, the merchant one says, the gleam of the merchant's eyes speak rewards given at a cost. And suddenly uh, 10 gold coins, or in our case, electrum coins, um, vanish from the character's money pouch, uh, coin pouch, and then they uh, get to re-roll uh, any of the dice of the attack roll um, and or roll them all and re-roll them all and take the higher result mm. um, and just I don't know just fun little things like that that randomly change up um, yeah makes things up you know these critical attacks and it makes the, the champion suddenly seem really strangely and oddly connected to to that environment as well that the Troka deck keeps showing up whenever they crit um, it's just mm. one more way to, to, to put it in there. I, I also made a Taroka cup drinking game. Okay. Um, based off of a, of an actual drinking card game called King's cup. We changed it of course to the count's cup. Mm -hmm. Um, cause count funny Strahd, Yeah. Uh, von Zarovich. Um, and, uh, and yeah, basically you roll initiative using charisma, uh, to see who's, you know, uh, kind of got the you know the best sort of uh mojo at the at the sort of the table and at the top of each round uh you have to sort of see if any of the rules from the previous rounds you know were forgotten or you know people haven't like done things they were supposed to do and keep drinking um and of course they're not really drinking their characters are drinking and so you gotta sort well, of keep... you can actually be drinking yeah you, <laughs> you could be. if you're of the appropriate um, age and then and then usually they've got what we call sort of drunk points and if the drunk points begin to exceed their constitution scores, somewhere usually between 10 and 14, um, they sort of start, you know, other bad effects start to happen and they have to start making some constitution saving throws and things. And, uh, and then, yeah, they, you just play with just the upper deck, which is just like 10 cards. And everybody goes around and they drink, draw a card and they have to do whatever's on the card. Or everybody at the table has to do it. Like if you draw the raven, everybody has to say nevermore. The last person to say it takes a drink. Um, and you just got to remember these sort of rules as it goes around and around the table and yeah, whoever ends up with the, you know, whoever's still standing after all the drunk points are calculated each round, uh, is the winner. Mm. And then you can actually have the, that had affect the next adventuring day. Where well, it does. It does. <laughs> and there's some people with it who are suffering a level of exhaustion the next day. Or maybe the poison um, condition. Maybe. Yeah. For a while it's, it's things are bad that evening. But, um, but that was a really great way, um, to first introduce the deck as well because at least for the upper deck they got to see those 10 or 12 cards um again and again and again uh as we were, went through several rounds of this and uh you know it's i think there's just fun things to do like this in your game that uh that require just a little extra creativity and then a couple of props mm. On the other end of the spectrum, though, if you don't have the ability to be at the table or even... Not to say that you can't do any of this. I, I in did, this, I did this last time virtually, so it's possible. Number 14, learn to use a variety of VTTs. And now VTT stands for Virtual Tabletop. That's right. A um, couple of programs like that that exist include... Um, well, famous ones are uh, what Roll20. Fantasy Grounds. Fantasy Grounds is a big one. Uh, I use uh, Tarask, which is very tiny, but amazing for what you get. Tailspire, uh, one of them. Yeah, that's a 3D one 3D that you one. requires a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of people also like using uh, Foundry these days. It's quite mm -hmm. popular. Okay, yeah. Um, but why learn different various ones? Is there is there something to that? Okay, well, I mean, each one has its various strengths and as time has gone by, they've also each gained in complexity. Uh, some are very easy to use. Like I said, Tarask is <clears throat> very stripped down, very simple. Um, where some of the more advanced ones, you load your whole character sheet into them. Everything is kind of run inside of it. Um, but also that means some of them also charge you for content. You need to be able to buy books and access stat blocks and all sorts of things. So there's like a whole nother set of purchases um others require a little bit more technical know-how can you set up a server can you install various modules on it 
and as a DM particularly, you know, learning to run these things. Now, if you get really good at a particular one, you can get sort of all the bells and whistles working. You can get all the various, you know, fogs of war and how darkness affects each character individually. And you can set up music and various sound effects to, to start when certain characters get to certain places. Like it's, it can be quite, uh, you can really, you know, up the experience. Um, and and it, it gets, if you get really good at doing it, I've seen some DMs who are, you know, becoming masterful towards this that, are it's becoming very video game-esque in many ways mm. um yeah it, it kind of does change the way the game feels if when you're doing it online um, some people once they start getting really into the vtt drop the video portion of their of their game completely and they just use they're just using audio and maps and i'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that if that's how you want to play go for it um well what i do is i have all my players install a face cam that turns them into their character <laughs> i'm kidding that would be cool um uh, no filter. there's something nice about yeah. for me at least when even when we're doing vtts i've only done it like once or twice because i just a group of teenage boys the attention is like what like like nothing there's like it's so easy for them to lose attention or focus on something else or be doing something else and because they probably are doing something else and i don't really blame them um but sometimes it's nice when everyone's focused or has their cameras on and it's like you can see them and i don't know it, it makes role play easier in my opinion and that's something that again is often lost in an online um play but learning to use different various you know virtual tabletops it's fun there's something undeniably very nice and satisfying yeah. about having it on a, a grid that you can because you can see everything sometimes when it's at a table it's like you have to stand up and try and get the angles and the and you, of course like you have more limitations with what the map can be and with what elevations can be and what you know because you don't have the full tool set and the ability to just ma manipulate a little digital image right the same way that you can manipulate real world i don't know there's a lot of advantages to using a vtt but there are also things that are lost i yeah, think this if, is just if, a suggestion to give it a go exactly you know? and and yeah the the bigger debate on this one really i'm a huge proponent for everybody having their camera on mm -hmm. um i think that role play is hard to start with for most people it's impossible if you can't really see another person's face mm -hmm. if you can't really read what they're doing especially if they're doing a voice or doing things like that is so easy to misconstrue what somebody's saying or what they're trying to do um in the dm more than anybody we kind of need to see them um to sort of be able to to read what's going on or at least me maybe some people are just can really pick stuff up just from the tone of somebody's voice but uh i think it's i think there's a reason why sitting around the table is so much easier to role play than online. I think it has to do with everything with body language, mm -hmm. how we, we can just see each other where there's a lot of nonverbal cues that happen between people. Um, so while virtual tabletops are wonderful for, I mean, tokens and maps and what you can do with them. I've got, and people together from I've got animated, I've got these animated maps. Yeah. And I bring in people from all over the place to get to play together. And it's super fun. Um, definitely super fun. But uh, there are advantages and disadvantages, just like, yeah. you know, some people play with certain, you know, do they play with maps at all? Right. I mean, it's it's different sure. varieties and scales and it changes the way the game feels for sure. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of actual it. plays out there, that, a lot of one shots and things you see with sort of celebrity players who don't do any maps at all. It's all theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. And they all just see everybody's webcam and they're just talking to each other and they're just like. Just, it's just like a role play adventure with some dice rolling in it. And they don't even need it uh, to be able to have like digital dice rolling, whatever. They just roll at their own table and tell each other what their, their numbers are. Mm -hmm. And if that's all you've got, if you just want to use like set up Zoom or Discord or something and just like chat like that with each other, you're done. I mean, you can easily play D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. That is in some ways the easiest virtual tabletop because you don't have to, you don't, you just go back to theater of the mind. It's, yeah. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So, and, you know, the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, we have done a lot more of this stuff. And I think people have gotten a lot, lot better at doing this stuff. Mm. Uh, if you've not yet tried it out, it is a it is a great way to meet new people. Um, there's mm. there's so many games online you can go and join yeah, now. There's something and, a lot safer as well, because it sometimes is intimidating to sit down at a new table in a new location with sure. new people. I mean, it, it can be really intimidating, and not to say that all of that is lost when it's online, but there's a safety, a certain safety, that you're in a, a, sa a comfortable sure. space. You're in your own home. And these some of these games, that, you can join yeah. games in other cities and other countries around the world. Exactly, there are people right. setting them up really all the time. 
places you see like very different cultures of D and D coming yeah. together. Demiplane, uh, start playing. Both uh, are places you can go now to find uh, online groups that are that are playing D and D. Some charge some some DMs charge some money for it, and that makes sense because it makes people a little bit more like serious about sure. you know, I mean, being sense, at the table. Sense, um, yeah. And it doesn't waste their time. Uh-huh. And let's be honest, like DMs do a lot of work. So, and nobody out there is making a fortune at being a DM, frankly. Uh, maybe you're working your cost per your your, your earnings maybe. per hour on that is probably like about minimum wage um so yeah <laughs> people are doing it more or less just to make sure that everybody at the table is sort of taking it seriously yeah uh, if you've paid you know ten although there is US sometimes there a weird relationship about you know paying for something and then bad things are happening to your character or luck not going in your way i can see it being a bit of a whatever i want my but, money back sure but again you're paying for the experience of playing D and sometimes bad luck is part of that experience i don't know but it's definitely an interesting discussion i think this is not telling you to you know charge people for games or be pay no, for D. Uh, but i'm just saying just try doing take, something take a risk yeah, of 10 bucks and join somebody you Maybe. know game they set up see what it's if like. you if you have 10 bucks to throw away for a little game right? want to throw away it's like two hours event three or hours of entertainment maybe it's but there's like, many free games as well out there yeah there are um, games too. it's an in, i think it's a fun experience um give it a go online even with your own friends if you're not comfortable sitting at a, a table of strangers um perhaps you are in character at a table of strangers that are increasingly becoming hostile i don't know i'm trying to find a, a good segue to this that's terrible um, uh, number 13 number 13 talk your way out of a fight uh, and this kind of ties back to playing a non-combat character, maybe, or a character duo. And not everyone will want to do this. Sometimes you've had two or three sessions without a combat. You just want to fight. You want to get. You want to get into it. But maybe the combat has now gone on for three or four rounds. You know, you've been playing for like two hours. And like, oh god, when will the combat end? As your bard or as your charisma character, as your whatever, stamp your foot down and go stand down. You know, you've you've taken their advantage, you've killed their leader, and now you make the call yeah. to talk well, them out. You of don't combat. necessarily even have to have a, the charisma character doing this. No. Um, first of all, as a DM, make sure your players are aware that everybody can talk during combat. Um, it's more fun if you sort of make the the ability to chat during it in character uh, a little bit more free. And yeah. it also means then you have to talk to the bad guys. And the bad guys can talk back as well. And if you create opportunities for both sides to parlay, um, that sometimes what begins as a combat, um, suddenly, like in the second rounds, when people start saying things, in the third round, a few people start like holding their actions or disengaging enough, and you sort of see, see like every like both sides starting to slam on the brakes, and do sort of slow down and, mm-hmm. and stop the fight. Um, so yeah, there's 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 that approach. That how do you stop a fight when you're in the middle of it? Mm. And that's actually one of the more interesting ones that comes up in D and D. And I think that's one that would be the one I really say like. You know, keep an eye out for opportunities to do this sort of thing because it can then really lead to save some... your hit points. It can save your spell slots. It can and it can lead to some interesting information coming out yeah. uh, between you know sides that were about to kill each other, and now are deciding that they're going to talk. Um, yeah, like I mean, think reasonably even in certain encounters where usually my if my badges are getting low enough hit points, like a group of bandits are not just going to all throw their lives away. Yeah, they're going to once one falls, they're probably all going to turn, you know, and yeah. run because they understand that they're outmatched. Um, or they're going to try and save their buddy as well, maybe. I mean, also, think that maybe you want to do that death saves for some uh, sure. things. Like, make yeah, maybe it's, like, not a fight to the death always. And then talking becomes another option that the bad guys want to do. Um, it's interesting, yeah, when you start creating an opportunity for conversation instead of fighting, how often that starts to become, like, part of a thing at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, go me wrong. There's things that won't negotiate, like zombies, um, right? But if you turn them and they all start running away, and then you get as enough distance, the combat will end, right? Yeah, it's or sort of a you, way of talking your way out of it. Sure. I mean, again, the, the idea with talking your way out is just using methods other than burning your resources to make the combat and like using your stats or skills or appealing to another side of this creature that doesn't involve continuing to head away at it and eat each other as hit points right um 
your cleric's thaumaturgy to scare the hell out of them. Maybe, yeah, it could in a certain um, scenario where they're beaten and bruised, and now this figure of of radiant light steps shadowing the ground with its, it's flaming enough, eyes and booming sure. voice. It's enough to the, the zombies will will leave you be for this time unless you engage them again, right? I don't know. Think about it, right? The other scenario, and I think you were kind of hinting towards this, is maybe it, this is happening mid combat and you're now decelerating combat, or before combat even begins, you know you're outmatched. You do not want to provoke this dragon or at least hold them off as long as possible before engaging and fighting to let your rogue slip in and get into the horde before it can notice anything. I don't know, right? You're using talking as a way of delaying combat or preventing it from happening even, um, which some players will be like, oh, no, we want to fight. This is a part of the game. Um, we want to do combat. And sure, but maybe your talking is just gives enough space for your wizard to ri secretly, which will ritually cast um, a comprehend languages or a identifier or whatever, detect magic, I don't know, that lets them get enough information to help you in the fight or whatever, right? I'm using this as a scenario to talk about why maybe talking doesn't need to just be negating fights, but adding ways to give you some leverage and advantage um, through your ability to communicate and role play at the table, right? Yeah, and, and you know, the other thing that we often don't do very well as DMs is look at how when when we are talking with a an NPC or a uh, you know a, a intelligent creature of some sort um, that the that it's not just simply uh, oh I'm gonna make a persuasion check and they're gonna be my friend right mm -hmm. persuasion isn't a magical power uh, there's a table and it really has to do with where there's actually three tables where the where the, are these tables dmg uh, the, the dmg page <laughs> just looking through <laughs> trying to find it um yeah they, sure. sure they, they um, indicate hostility indifference and friendliness right? yeah and and so what you're trying to do with it is is you want to sort of let the role play happen for a while back and forth and see if and this is important as a dm to know your bad guys goals and your what they want and what they're trying to get you know accomplished and sort of their disposition towards things and if the player through that little conversation can seem to sync up with that somehow then you have to sort of decide well are they really hostile anymore or are they um you know are they getting to be something maybe a bit more indifferent and then there's a a role that can take place and whether or not the the creature is willing to, you know, go along with you to sort of risk its own neck a little bit to be different to or to be opposing you, um, depending on you know how well you sort of do. And so there's there's actually mechanics rules in the game um, set up to do this. And yeah, for parlay. so yeah. seldom do I ever see DMs actually using these. Mm. I think it's a an interesting scenario to use role play as a you know tactical advantage. Um, sometimes though, you can have a session that is just role play as well, and that might look like the next thing on our list, which is number twelve, having a cooking episode or a shopping episode. What is like? What does this mean? I, I know we use the word episode because it kind of reminds us of some sort of show where maybe it's a bit of a filler episode in in, in overall where they're not fighting or progressing the plot but they're taking time yeah, I mean, to you know suit up it doesn't have to be a whole you know session. the whole session at the yeah. table it could be part of one um but the idea of this is i mean it's so much fun if you can kind of get into um especially if the if you have one person in the party who's decided at some point they were going to take the cooking utensils as their tool mm -hmm. Or somebody took the chef feet. Um, there is some stuff out there that in D and D already lends itself to cooking. Um, maybe some people have got some herbalism and some alchemy stuff going on in there, and suddenly you're like, okay, well, you people clearly know a little bit about putting, you know, different ingredients together. Um, so why not, why not set up some sort of scenario where? Uh, you know, a meal becomes a pivotal point in your story. And mm. you as a group of characters need to prepare a meal for some 
kobold king, you know, who's demanding you prepare them a a f- proportional feast to feed the entire kobold, you know, cavernous, you know, little group that they have there, right? I don't know. Think of a quest you could give that involves some sort of thing other than, you know, just... Or it could even just be... Maybe it isn't a dire scenario and they just want to have a cooking episode and make something. I but it's... It it's fun to add steaks, it, it, It's fun to find... To figure out recipes, uh, how you want to do... Which dishes they're going to try and do. Mm-hmm. Do they need to go actually do some foraging? Uh, do yeah, they well, there's something for the barbarian to go and do to hunt um, some... You know, and you can create like little, you know, funny side quest points on that. You can do... Um, you can do a few different things with it that allows characters to to sort of find themselves in a a different space than they're in every single game mm-hmm. um, one that we gloss over so many times I mean players eat in the games but you know it's it's not it's not the big part of the story often unless you decide to make it part of the story and and when we do that uh, and, and cooking is just one example. It could be, there could be where you're, you're deciding to do repair a house or there could be one where, um, I've done one where I've helped in a garden before. There's ones where your character, a little bit based on interesting tools they might have or backgrounds or things like that, partake in an activity. We're not just about downtime activity, but something that is helping or interacting with an NPC or with an, uh, an enemy combatant of some sort that whether you're being held prisoner or whether you're doing it for information or whether you're doing it for sort of whatever, you know, the motivation might be on it. Um, but allows the characters to, to, to be more than just fighters, more than just people who are throwing out damage. And instead their, their skill challenges on it are really focused. And they can be group skill challenges as well that aren't just combat, which I think are, you know, the idea that everyone can have a role in helping out prepare the meal is, is kind of cute, you know? Um, and I, I wonder if, like, the, if there's other scenarios like that as well. Like, is, are there any things that, like, come to mind that, like, could be another example of um, this group skill challenge in, in the same sense that a cooking episode could be, that everyone's sort of helping towards this one common goal that could still have stakes and still be dangerous if they fail but you know is a little bit almost more comical than just killing everything right um like making a meal or making a um i don't know maybe like making a statue or making a i'm trying to think of like what's something everyone could help you know do right to to solve an issue yeah so we call these skill challenges in the game and you know they can be set up around anything uh, they could be a uh, escaping from a town they could be whatever you want to sort of fast forward and then yeah but i'm specifically sort of but, talking about yeah, like so rather than just a, a you, series of skill checks but you they, bring it down yeah. to a very focused point yeah um like cooking a meal and i think the thing i love about the cooking the meal scenario is that unlike some situations where we are really having to fantasize about you know well how would i how would i sail a ship if you've never been on a boat before you how would you know you're just making the stuff up right but mm-hmm. cooking is something a little bit more mundane that, you know, all of us human beings have been in a kitchen at some point, not a professional one, but, you know, our own um, and put together something that we've eaten uh, or served to friends. And we've managed to do it without, you know, poisoning people terribly. Um, if we do it well, you know, it's delicious and it can have a, a real effect on people. And so there's something fun about picking picking something that people know how to do and then letting them letting them run with it for a bit. And as characters, mm-hmm. as a player at the table, you know. It's going to be a memorable session, regardless, even if you're not advancing the plot terribly. You know, I think players, if, if you make it fun and, and unique, it'll stand out in their memories. Oh, remember that time we had to prepare a whole feast for this, you know, goblin. And, and the mistakes you know, and the things, the failures and the on the checks are funny. Yeah. Um, They're that, not like you fall off the roof. It's like, no, you... You know, maybe the the soup's a little too salty now, <laughs> or you know, like, yeah, like yeah. It, it's it's there's a lot of opportunity to have some fun role play and witty improv and back and forth, and and so the game doesn't always need to be too serious um, yeah. from time to time. It's it's a fun thing to do there. And the last one on our list, for number today, eleven for today. today. This one's a bit of a bigger topic, uh, but we'll end with this one. Uh, number eleven, use spell points. 
What are spell points, Jack? We've had an episode talking a little bit about spell points, and I think they're a really interesting tool. Um, also, I believe in the DMG. And yeah, we're, not, we're not just making this stuff up. This ain't homebrew, folks. Spell points is another way to approach spell casting outside of spell slots. Um, the way it essentially works, if you're if you're kind of familiar with sorcery points, it's not terribly different. It's the idea that you cast spells using a, from a pool of points rather than from these individual leveled spell slots. You know, of course, higher level spells require more points, and lower level spells require less points. Um, perhaps there's a limit to the number of points you can spell uh, spend, right? If you're upcasting a spell, it requires more points, right? This is the the philosophy yeah, behind this is, it. This um, is uh, this is page 288 of the DM's guide, mm -hmm. uh, variant spell points. You know, the idea is kind of simple. It, it starts to provide a lot of interesting different scenarios. What if you had a campaign where some players just use their spell slots, but maybe certain classes, like a sorcerer even, could use spell points, or perhaps your warlock uses them? How would that differ between them? Uh, and okay, so ideas. first of all, you're going to have to go onto paper with this. D&D Beyond does not support variant spell points, although, gosh, I wish they did. Although you um, could kind of make it maybe happen. I don't know. We, uh, yeah, yeah, it's easy enough to track on pen and paper. And, <clears throat> and it basically just gives you spell points by level, how much you get, and then what's the maximum spell level you can cast along the way. And it then t t shows you what the spell point costs for casting various spells are. Uh, like a first level spell costs you two points, a fourth level will cost you six, a seventh level spell will cost you ten, so on. Uh, and, and then, yeah, you just decide from your point of pool, your pool of points, how you, uh, how you want to cast what you want to cast. Mm -hmm. So it, it might allow you to squeak out <clears throat> a little bit more, an extra higher level spell that you wouldn't have normally been able to do because you didn't have the other slot for it. Um, but now you don't have all the slots that you would normally have for the lower level ones because your points are burnt, right? Mm -hmm. So it allows you to sort of, as a caster, be a little bit more dynamic about how you're going to do it. Or you can just spam the heck out of your lower class, your your lower point value mm. pieces without worrying, oh, I've only got four first level spell slots. Nope, they're two points each, and I can blast away for all 64 of my points. I can do that, you know, 32 times. Mm. Um, and that's fine. Um, yeah. It gets a little bit more cool even if you... If you add uh, sorcerer points, sorcery points into this mix, yeah, it gets starts to get a little confusing somehow. For me, I don't know why, but I'm just like, how does the conversion work anymore in between? Because they're actually, I think, if you look at the table for turning sorcery points into spell slots, it almost matches exactly with what the spell point table it is. It does. Right? And and so you could just turn two sorcery points into two <coughs> spell points, or three sorcery points into three spell. I mean, I wonder if it could even be. A I I sometimes really feel. Like these spell point ideas, when they were cooking up 5e, it was so close to giving this to sorcerers. Mm. Um, I think just the way it matches up very nicely, you can essentially just let sorcerer points and spell points live in a common pool. Mm. Maybe. And that, that, I think, provides a really fun sorcerer idea where you have lots of metamagic points, and lots of spell points and you can kind of mix and match however you want to use those together and and it won't break the game because you know here's a pool of resources that the player has to manage and yeah they could very quickly dump a whole bunch of points very fast into round one of of the fight but then they're going to be really short on points going forward and yeah, maybe they did a ton of damage or maybe they missed or maybe that creature saved or whatever. Like there's always a risk with with magic anyways. So I uh, I think there's plenty of opportunity here for this to be super fun and super fair to play with. Um, mm. I mean, I, I even imagine like what could spell points look like on a half caster? I think that's yeah. a fun scenario. Well, that um, suggests that in here as well. Like, you know, for fighters and arcane tricksters, um, or even rangers and paladins. Like, yeah. What would that look like? I mean, 
could you even do a, a paladin with spell points? Like, how would smites work? And how, I think it's an interesting scenario to start thinking about it because it almost changes again the mental approach to casting spells or using your your magical essence, right? It almost becomes again this mana bar or pool or whatever that you're you're hitting down from, just like your hit points or your whatever. Like you know, you're counting down until you hit zero. Um, like I think a lot of people are more familiar with a system like that rather than the way spell slots currently exist in D and D. Um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about, right? Changing the fundamental ways the game is structured. Um, and the fact that the DMG provides it just, again, is a testament to how much there is to tweak and play with this game. Um, and how much the, the game is it, it's begging you to play with different, different things, yeah. to try different stuff, to mix it up, to, you know, to get this stuff into your game or to ask your DM to let you put it in the game. And as DMs, when players ask you to do stuff, remember, yes, and. Um, you might find it really fun to let them use spell points. You might be encouraging it. At some point, you might be like, I'll even give them a magic item that helps them recover spell points faster. Or, you know, you might find it super fun to have in your game. Mm -hmm. um, I, I Honestly, I know that we rely on our digital toolbox a lot. And probably one of the reasons we don't use spell points is because I, I can't easily make a character sheet that I can use on a virtual tabletop or things like that and click digital dice and things mm. to have happen. But I love spell points. I wish they were I wish they were something we could use more easily. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and I think that that sort of brings us into like the whole wider idea of why we are maybe we like spell points and why we encourage you to use spell points. I think it's also like encouraging you to look at variant rules, right? Spell points being one of them. I mean, look at adding different ability scores, looking at how, you know, maybe you can change up the way the attack action works or the way that certain, like, I mean, have a look at the way the game currently exists and question if you could make it better, right? At this stage of D&D, &D, it's about, you know, understanding how the system works, right? And yeah. when you can adapt the system to your own interests or even experiment with it, maybe it doesn't work. That's okay. I mean, it's just about you don't need to, trying new things. Yeah, you don't need to rebuild a, a role-playing game system. You don't have to come up with your own RPG. D&D is great. It's, it's super flexible. Change just the bits you need to change. Or the, the um, bits that you would like to see what yeah. changes about it. I mean, or, or make a, a change and see it. exactly. Ooh, I can see why we don't do that now. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, just, uh, you know, make the game your own. You don't have to wait for, you know, everybody who's out there going, oh, what I'd like to see changed in sixth edition would be, you know, X. And I'll be like, uh, don't worry. Just change it now, dude. Just if that's how you play think D&D &D would be like better that. to play, just do that. Yeah. Go for it. Um, make it make everybody clear about why you're doing it and what your you know the expectations from that is, and then see how that works. Mm -hmm. uh, it might work great. Yeah. It may work way better than the rules that are written now. And then hey, you're on to something. You've got a better table than than others. Good for you. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. But maybe but, it's just a table that works for you. Right? Yeah, and for your players. And that's the most important thing. And that's like again, if there's a hundred and one things you need to do before you die, is to have a table that works for you. Um, I don't think mm -hmm. of that specifically on our list, but that's really a lot of what we're suggesting with all these things that we've been talking about is is really getting to a place where the D&D you're playing is the best game, your best game ever. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a great place for us to wrap up our yeah. penultimate episode. Exactly. As we go countdown. into our, our top 10, which is, to be honest, going to be even more of what we've just been sort of talking about, making your best game ever. Um yeah, I hope some of this was useful in terms of thinking of what you could do to liven up your games and stay tuned for next week where we finish off the celebration. Um, again, thanks for all tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.